Thank you, Alan, and welcome. My name is Fred Paul, and you are watching ADH TV, the new home for common sense commentary in Australia. Well, it's a curious coincidence that the ideology that thinks the world is overpopulated is also indifferent to policies that lead to the death of other people. Worshippers in the church of wokeness think nothing of the people who will freeze in the dark in Europe this winter because, well, you know, there's too many people on the planet anyway, and a few less would make it easier for those who want to stay behind and look after the environment. This is disturbing enough. But when that same ideology infiltrates the services that we once relied on to save lives, then it's probably time for us to push back a little harder. The Victorian government recently repeatedly ignored requests for more funding from the Emergency Services Telecommunications Authority, which runs the triple O service in that state. As a result, 33 people died waiting for an ambulance. Meanwhile, Ambulance Victoria was busy advertising to fill six jobs with titles such as Director of Diversity and Inclusion, Executive Assistant, Executive Assistant to the Executive Director of the Equality and Workplace Reform Division and the Senior Program Manager of Implementation. Between them, the jobs were worth a cool three quarters of a million dollars a year. The new employees were hired to help replace Ambulance Victoria's supposedly toxic culture and end the, quote, stereotype of paramedics as white, male, of able body and mind, confident, stoic, and the family breadwinner, unquote. This is the world we are living in now. White men who are strong, sane, professional, and working to raise a family need to make room in the ambulance services for, I presume, untrained people of color in wheelchairs. Have a look at this image from the page on Ambulance Victoria's website outlining its plan to care for their employees' mental health. There is one clearly white woman and no men of the same shade, but there are two dogs. Perhaps it's not the job that's driving some of AV's employees crazy, but the wokeness of the work environment. When you live in the real world, the world where people simply get on with each other regardless of race, sexuality or gender, it's easy to be oblivious to this stuff. But it's absolutely everywhere. Here are a few jobs that are currently being advertised. The city of Newcastle in New South Wales is advertising for a quote, diversity and inclusion, inclusion specialist to be part of our talent diversity and inclusion team to implement our recently launched inclusion, diversity and equity strategy, unquote. The Royal Flying Doctor Service, the organization that we were all taught as kids was a life-saving service for people in remote farms and towns, is seeking a diversity and inclusion partner who can help them, quote, strive towards creating a more culturally safe and inclusive environment, unquote. I thought they were just rescuing people from farms who had had accidents. Anyway, the last one is the University of Tasmania has an exciting opportunity for a workplace inclusion, diversity and equity manager who will, quote, 
shape an inclusion, diversity and equity focused culture and deploy a breadth of, it, of diversity and inclusion initiatives which deliver both transformational and operational impact, unquote. If you didn't know about this, it's time you did because you're paying for it. You're also paying for people to research it, analyze it and write about it. The Australian Public Service Commission's State of the Service report in 2020 found that, quote, a culture of inclusion is critical for the public service to achieve the benefits of a diverse workforce that a diverse workforce can offer, unquote. These people have never heard of circular reasoning. They went on, quote, inclusion also helps individuals feel valued, supported and respected. It allows their full potential to be realized at work as it minimizes any sense they might need to hide or downplay aspects of their identity, unquote. I'll say it again, you paid for this rubbish. The author of this report into the 150,000 workers in the federal public service implies that without inclusiveness, bigotry would make minorities unwelcome because, you know, that's the way Australians are these days. The author also fails to acknowledge that the, human, the Australian Human Rights Commission and its various state-based state offshoots have turned allegations of workplace discrimination into a nice little earner for themselves over the past few years. Many of these allegations go unproven because the defendant finds it more prudent to avoid the bad publicity by simply forking out some go-away money. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese didn't invite the four major banks to his jobs summit last week, despite them having 160,000 employees between them and being intricately entwined with all sorts of businesses across the country. But he did invite Helen Daly Fisher of the Equality Rights Alliance, a women's group, Wayne Miller of the Sejuna Aboriginal Corporation and Pat Turner of the Indigenous Coalition of Peaks. Now, these people might or might not have brought general insight into the jobs market to the summit, but they certainly brought their demands for inclusiveness. Where does all this stuff lead? Well, it leads to the, it leads to the so-called treaties that are currently being drawn up between the Victorian and Queensland governments and their respective Indigenous populations which make about as much sense as an awards ceremony at a transgender sporting carnival. It leads to things like the voice to parliament, which sounds nice in theory, but is just woke inclusiveness taken to its illogical extreme. So extreme, in fact, that it proposes to change our constitution. And there's the rub. We might dismiss this inclusiveness as just harmless leftism, making supposedly marginalized minorities feel all welcome and so on, but it's way, way more significant than that. This inclusiveness will fundamentally change our society because it seeks divide us, to, to, to divide us by skin color, sexuality, and gender, if genders still exist anymore, while insinuating that to not do so will expose minorities to our inherent bigotry. With the exception of a tiny few, Australians are absolutely not bigots. We are one of the happiest, most welcoming nations in history, and our laws and institutions are ensuring equal rights for everyone. 
Anybody who tells you otherwise is either a diversity officer already or a recent graduate with a woke degree who's waiting to also jump aboard the diversity gravy train. It's time that train pulled into a station and let its passengers get off and return to the real world. Well, radical green politicians want us to think that they are the free-thinking rebels against Western civilization's boring old earth-destroying ways, but invite them to a glittering black tie affair in a grand ballroom and watch them dust off the tux or haute couture gown and take their place among their fellow elites. They don't admit it, but this is exactly where they belong. Leading the green charge at the midwinter ball in Canberra last night was none other than Sarah Hansen Young in a figure-hugging white dress emblazoned with the words in black, end gas and coal. Well, did she mean it? Not really. Well, not last night anyway. Gas and coal are what made the event and her starring role in it possible. How could the press photographers have captured her Marilyn Monroe-esque arrival in the marble foyer of, of Parliament House last night if Gas and Cole hadn't been powering the spotlight she, in her own mind at least, so richly deserved? And could she have glamorously exposed all that skin in the middle of a Canberra winter if fossil fuels hadn't warmed the building up to a temperature hovering comfortably around the IQ of her average voter. No, when she says she wants to end coal and gas, she means for the millions of people like you, who instead of attending the Canberra midwinter mid mid ball last night with all the other elites, were huddling around a heater with your family, wondering how you're gonna pay the, bill, the power bills this year, let alone next year when gas shortages and unreliable renewables force you to choose between electricity and food. Sarah wasn't the only juvenile to scrawl a political message on an otherwise attractive ball gown last night. Green's late leader Adam Bant's wife, Claudia Perkins, turned up as a billboard for the slogans, coal kills and gas kills. Kills what and how many of them, Claudia wasn't saying. I'm guessing by the haughty look on her face, all she killed was the vibe. But the headline act was Senator Lydia Thorpe, who petulantly walked through the crowd yelling, quote, this is a hall for fossil fuels, unquote. Well, obviously, not just the hall, the whole building and the city around it and the whole nation for that matter. Without fossil fuels, Lydia and her tribe, by which I don't mean her white ancestors, would still be traipsing around the bush looking for marsupials to kill for dinner. Thorpe was actually referring to the fact that the ball had been partly sponsored by Woodside and Shell, which is one of the other, which is, which is why one of the other Green senators, Jordan Steele John, didn't attend. The Daily Mail quoted him saying, quote, watching MPs swan about in suits and sparkles at an event openly sponsored by coal and gas is frankly sickening, unquote. On the contrary, it was refreshing to see his colleagues having fun for a change, while also allowing the rest of us to have a damn good laugh at their hypocrisy.
A friend of mine told a funny story recently about a man caught walking across the Sydney Harbour Bridge during the COVID lockdowns. A cop stopped him and asked him what gave him the legal right to be outdoors. I'm exercising, the man said, vaguely aware that it constituted a legal exemption from the East German style 24 hour curfew. Doesn't look like it to me, the cop said. You're not walking fast enough. Similar anecdotes emerged from Victoria where people who had legally popped out to buy a coffee had the contents of their cups tested by aggressive police officers to see whether they were hot enough. The New South Wales Ombudsman yesterday published his second report into the state's COVID response, and it's not flattering. Firstly, it points out that the standard model of lawmaking, this is through history, by a dual, which is by a duly elected parliament or through powers delegated to a relevant minister, were, during the pandemic, replaced by public health orders, which were fast and flexible, but also, quote, imposed extraordinary and significant incursions on individual rights without ordinary parliamentary consideration and oversight, unquote. The Ombudsman reported that this led to many people feeling overwhelmed, confused and uncertain about what they could and could not do on any given day. His report said, quote, mere ignorance of the law is generally considered no excuse for a failure to comply. On the other hand, that laws are knowable by those who are subject to them is a fundamental requirement of the law. When laws are introduced, it is important that they are known and predictable so that people understand what they are permitted and not permitted to do, unquote. Well, my next guest is Professor James Allen, the Garrick Professor of Law at the University of Queensland, a barrister and author of the book De Democracy in Decline, as well as countless opinion pieces for The Australian and The Spectator. He'll have some particularly learned opinions about the way the New South Wales government went about its Stasi-style lockdown. James, welcome to the show. Thank you, Fred. Nice to be on. My mum would have believed your introduction, so thank you very much for that. Uh, very nice. <laughs> well, I hope she's watching. Let's talk about the cause uh, of this lockdown. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about the cause of the lockdown. It was known from the start that the virus had a relatively low infection fatality rate. Some say as low as 1%. Why do you think did governments in Australia respond so harshly to it? Well, let me just firstly say that as early, there was a bunch of us in The Spectator Australia as early as March and April 2020 saying this is going to be the worst public policy fiasco in 200 years. Lord Sumption is coming out to make that same claim. The, the complete and total abandonment of any sort of cost-benefit analysis. Uh, you know, you'll remember Zoe Buller was, was handcuffed, the pregnant woman in her house, and the and the assistant police commissioners said anyone who objects to lockdowns is, and I'm quoting here, batshit crazy. Well, I'm part of the batshit crazy brigade because as the evidence piles up, it is now becoming apparently clear that even on the criterion of excess deaths, how many people are dead, lockdowns will kill more people than the lives they saved. Leave aside closing schools, you've ruined young children's education, some will never catch up. It was the biggest transfer of wealth these last two years from the poor to the rich ever. If you were a billionaire, great. And it was also the biggest transfer of wealth from the young to the old. 
on every access of consideration. And all you got from the press and from politicians was, oh, you're in favor of killing grandmothers. Well, no. Well, More people inter- will die lockdowns than were saved. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned the press. It had a pretty, uh, a pretty terrible effect on freedom of speech too, to which I'd argue huge swathes of the press were actually complicit, don't you think? I think that's an understatement. If anything, Fred, they were shockingly, they didn't, they didn't use their brains and do any inquiry. They were like the PR, they were like Pravda, some sort of PR department for government. You have to remember these public health officers, and I'm going to be blunt here, you know, these were people who've been career civil servants. They probably came bottom of their, their class in medical school. And they were, the, the, the three people who signed the Great Barrington Declaration, you had Professor Sinetra Gupta at Oxford. She's got the most distinguished chair of theoretical epidemiology. A guy at Harvard called Kulldorff and a, a Jay Bhattacharya, who's coming out to Australia from Stanford. And they wrote the Great Barrington Declaration, which is based on 100 years of data. Take care of the vulnerable. Don't lock down. It goes right back to, uh, you know, 1918. So the Spanish flu, they had all the data. And between October 2019 and two months later, based on watching people get welded into their homes in China and some, you know, some shocking footage out of Italy, the science didn't change. There was panic. The press jumped on board. And again, this is going to go down. You you can already see in Britain and America that politicians and the press are already pretending they had nothing to do with lockdowns. They were never in favor because the the data is now stacking up. It was a, a series of terrible decisions. I personally am pretty Old Testament. I'm glad that Morrison lost. I hope every politician in this country who who imposed this thuggery on us gets voted out, whatever party they're in. Vote them out. Well, this latest report piles onto that that change of heart that you're talking about. And the Ombudsman's report says that the public health orders, quote, imposed extraordinary and significant incursions on individual rights. Now, from your perspective, let's talk legally. That's an understatement, don't you think? Well, it is. But here's my complaint. You know, uh, in 2020, 2021, there was a handful of us speaking out. You had no chance of winning in courts. And, you know, typically with big rights infringements, the judges say nothing until five years later, you know, when they incarcerated the Japanese in Britain. And then they come out and say, this was shocking. And the ombudsman, this is shocking. Where was he? Where was he for the last two years? You know, this is totally predicted because I predictable because I predicted it. In about two or three years, you're going to find everyone criticizing what happened. They're going to criticize the thuggery and the despotism. But the problem was that our politicians did not stand on principle. You know, we had a, a set of politicians at the federal level in the in the coalition, and they just seemed to be completely value free. The, the general notion was, well, here's their defense lately. They say something like, well, we were in massive uncertainty. So, you know, maybe they took too long to unwind. But that's a that's a bad argument in the face of uncertainty. Why would you think that welding people in your home is the right approach in the face of uncertainty? You know, the data is pretty clear. The best thing to do is nothing while you wait and see and get some data. And they completely overreact. And, And you know, it's it's shocking. In the phase of uncertainty, the last thing you should do is abandon your principles. Correct. Correct. But that's what they did. 
Well, actually, you might not, you might say Dan Andrews didn't abandon his principles, but a coalition government abandoned their principles. Well, th those health orders, um, let, let's get back to those health orders. It was difficult for, according to the ombudsman, it was difficult for people in New South Wales to know what the hell was going on. And I'd, I'd extend the same confusion to everywhere else in the country. Health ministers and officers around the nation were making laws on the run the same way. Now, I'd say that those laws were unknowable for two reasons. They were vague and they kept changing them. Is that how you saw it? Yeah, I mean, there's a place in a, in a real emergency when the country's being bombed. So effectively, you can delegate power through a statute to some member of the executive, a minister or some official. Uh, but you, you usually cabin that within certain um, grounds. And so to the extent that any lawsuits were successful during the pandemic, there were a few in the U.S., they were all straightforward administrative law where someone went in and argued what these people did, they could do, but Parliament or the, or the uh, legislature had to enact a statute that allowed it, and they didn't. They just passed some, some vague pr provision, and so they were acting ultra vires. Those sort of arguments have a chance to win. Nobody ran them in Australia. I don't know if they would have won here. I think Australians were you know, completely, uh, there was so much fear porn press that they were, there was so much fear. And I think this infected the lawyerly cast and the judges as well. You know, there's no point in going to the judges if they're as afraid they're going to die as everyone else. Might as well forget it. James, you're born in Canada, so you have a slightly outsider's perspective on this. Why do you think Australians fell for this? Well, actually, I have to I have to say right out loud now that Canada was at least as bad as Australia. You know, they were seizing the bank accounts of truckers. Uh, Sweden was the gold star, the the bellwether country. Uh, Florida's governor. Ron DeSantis, and people don't know, but he has two Ivy League degrees. He's a very smart guy. He actually started looking at the evidence. He'd front press conferences, and when he got this ridiculously over-the-top questions from, from uh, the journalists, he was able to cite the data. And the problem, I think, is that people believe the modeling. So you get Neil Ferguson out of Imperial College, and he's making claims that are orders of magnitude wrong. This is a man who has never gotten a a model right in his life. He got foot and mouth disease wrong. He got bovine spongy form encephalopathy, like mad cow disease wrong. And he was getting, and he got those wrong by a thousand times or a hundred times. And he comes out with this model, which we now know uh, was wrong on every axis. And so when people go, oh, well, you know, the, it's, it's expanding exponentially. It never was span, expanding exponentially. At the lockdowns in Britain, they were already on the downslope every time they brought in a lockdown. And so he, Standing up and saying that it was expanding exponentially is just factually wrong. Now, it's true that most models said it was, but the models were wrong. You can make whatever predict, you can make whatever analogy you want with uh, climate change here, uh, Fred, but there's no reason these modelers are useless. I, yeah. I did a math degree, and I tell you, there's you, you get out what you put in. If well, you're a if you're a you know fear porn exponent, you can build that into the model, and then you're done. Well, people made the mistake, and politicians especially made the mistake of thinking that modelling was science, and it's nothing of a kind. But James, let's talk about the Liberal Party now, because uh, you're a staunch conservative, and I'm sure the viewers are well aware of that by now. And you advocated for like-minded people to vote Labor, lo vote for Labor during the federal election to punish the coalition and purge it of its left-leaning infiltrators. 
Well, you got some of your wish uh, back in May. Has anything happened since the election to restore your faith in the Liberal Party, James? Well, let me just first on that, you know, typically people who are conservative are called hard right, far right, extreme right. So I, you couldn't put a piece of paper between my views and John F. Kennedy's on just about anything, on defense, on tax. Uh, you know, he'd probably want a few more hookers in the White House than I would. But leaving that aside, I mean, and so if you have that set of views, bog standard Democrat Party in the early 1960s, you are now considered hard right, far right, conservative. So I feel the spectrum moved and I didn't. I'm not that old, but you know, that set of views. So if you have those set of views and you looked at the recent performance of the coalition, it's so dispiriting. You, know, you can't think of a single thing after Abbott stopped the boats that the legacy of the you know, coalition party is worth anything. They get into government. Their appointments are consistently left of center appointees. The Human Rights Commission is a disgrace. I would close it down. Every member of the Human Rights Commission was appointed by uh, conservatives. You know, you've got a freedom commissioner who doesn't believe in freedom, appointed by George Brandis. You've got it, and, and leaving aside all the appointees, um, you know, the high court that delivered you the love decision, the majority all appointed by the coalition, uh, they, they can't fight for free speech in Section 18C. You're trying to, you're desperately looking for some reason to think, okay, this is worth voting for. They sign up to net zero, which is a, an election winner. So I was glad they lost. I mean, it, it's a hard call, but sometimes, you know, the party has been taken over by cuckoos. It's, it's the sort of young staffers who don't believe in anything. And all they want to do is look at the focus groups. I, I think Dutton should have come in on the first day and fired every advisor who was advising um, Morrison. I don't know if he did that, but those people don't care about values. They just do focus groups. Well, quickly before you go, James, let's talk about the next election where we where conservatives might have a remote chance, which is in Victoria. Scooting, uh, scoring political points down in Victoria should, should be like shooting fish in a barrel right now, but Victorian opposition leader Matthew Guy couldn't hit water if he fell out of a boat. Do you think Victorians will How go with him anyway? Lose? How can you lose to the guy who imposes the world's longest lockdown spends money like there's no tomorrow, won't answer questions, and is a thug politically, how can you lose? Well, the only way you can lose is by not offering opposition on any front, really. I don't know what they're doing. It, I actually think that Dutton can win the next election. I don't know. I, you know, If you were a betting person, you sure wouldn't bet on Matthew Guy. It's an embarrassment that they're going to lose to Dan Andrews. But Dutton better, I think we need Dutton to come out against the voice where you treat different people not based on their character, but on the color of their skin or their genetic background. That's that's shocking. And I, I don't know what he's waiting for. He's got to come out against the voice. Um, I think he's got to start looking at Europe and realizing that their energy problems are coming here. Doesn't I don't know what he's doing. He's in witness protection so far, but hopefully he escapes from witness protection and he makes a few, uh, you know, appearances yeah. in media and starts saying stuff. I don't know where he is. Well, the, the, the runs on the board are just waiting to be scored for, for Peter Dutton and for Matthew Guy, for that matter. James Allen, thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Fred. And I like that tie, buddy. <laughs> Say good day to your mum for me. I will. <laughs> that's, I will. Bar that's barrister and author and law professor James Allen from the University of Queensland. Well, let's finish off the week as usual with a chat about the big issues with the eruditely egalitarian Nick Cater, 
from Nick Cater's Battleground, which is broadcast here on ADH TV every Friday at 8 p.m. I should add that tomorrow marks another expansion of the ADH lineup with Professor David Flint's inaugural Save the Nation, a one-hour interview show following straight on from Nick's Battleground. David's first guest is none other than former Prime Minister and arguably the last decent Liberal leader anywhere in Australia, Tony Abbott. So you won't want to miss either show tomorrow night. But first to Nick. Now, by way of disclosure, I should say that I worked for Nick at the Menzies Research Centre, where he's still executive director, for three years until 2018. We also worked together occasionally over the years at News Corp as journalists. And despite being a pommy migrant, Nick, it must be said, is one of the most patriotic Australians I know. Partly because he, as an, as an outsider, he can clearly see the lack of class divisions in our culture. I say this because tomorrow night, Nick goes toe to toe with federal Labor MP Matt Thistlethwaite, the Assistant Minister for the Republic. Nick might be an adopted patriot, but he sees a red herring in this Republican movement, and that's what we're gonna discuss now. Nick, welcome to the show. Hi Fred, good to be here again. Nick, I'll leave the technical debate about the Republic for your chat with the Assistant Minister tomorrow, but what has always fascinated and frightened me is that the Republic seems to be a Trojan horse for wokeism, because mm. it seems to have quite a correlation with it. It's the cultural consequences that are the most significant to me. What do you think? Well, yeah, I think you're right, Fred. Look, but, I mean, tomorrow I talk about the constitutional consequences. I mean, basically, it's not like the, the, the monarchy or the crown, as it's actually termed in the country. It's not just like a sort of bolt-on bit on the side you can just cut off. It's the, it's the foundation stone. You pull that out and the whole thing starts to look wobbly. And uh, I don't think they thought this through. And, uh, but I, I agree with you fully that it's just part of the ongoing woke crusade, isn't it? And, and, and look, we've we got a government now which hasn't even got its first referendum drafted, hasn't even got the question draft, it hasn't got a date, hasn't even started to make the arguments and already it's moving on to a second. It's just like, you know, they're in such a hurry. And, um, I, you know, I, I, if they really want to get these through, by the way, I, my advice to them is to slow down. You know, people have to take time to adjust to change. They must think it's just the vibe of the thing, really. Yeah. But, mm. I mean, signs of the, the encroaching wokeness at all levels of government are everywhere. The, the latest one is the Melbourne City Council, which you'd know about, proposing to do away with Australia Day. What mm. do you make of that? Well, I've always felt Melbourne is yeah, a nice place to visit, but it's not quite Australia anyway. Is it? <laughs> I'm sorry, that was, that was just blatant prejudice from somebody who loves, loves Sydney. But, look, it, it's just... It's pathetic, really, I think, is my, my view, Fred. I just think that they, they just cannot recognise there's something bigger than themselves in their own work cause, and that's the, and that's the nation which we are fortunate enough to live in. I mean, um, we've got, uh, as you know, next week we're celebrating uh, Neville Bonner, the first Indigenous member of Parliament who gave his maiden speech uh, 51 years ago this week. And it's an amazing speech because Bonner is clearly proud to be there as, as an Aborigine, as he calls himself, unfashionable as that word is now. Uh, and uh, he's proud of that. But he first and foremost, he makes it abundantly clear, first and foremost, 
His, his, his allegiance is to his country and he's there to do the best for all people in the country. He's not there to run a special mission for his own people, proud as he is of them. And, and that's, that's been lost, hasn't it? We're all now special interest groups. It's all Melbourne City Council and their own little peculiar way of thinking about the world. And they don't seem to want to be part of this fantastic country, which actually makes me quite angry, I have to say. And, and me too. And I can tell you where I think it's being lost. It's not rocket science, this. Not that I studied rocket science at school, but <laughs> it's our education department. Yeah. I mean, all of this seems to come it's precisely from the crap that they're teaching kids in school and they're believing it. Mm. What, do, what do we do about that, Nick? You're from a, the Menzies Research Centre. When, when are you going to produce a, a report into the state of Australian education? Don't you start. Look, we, it, 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 it's a huge topic and frankly, I'm not quite sure I know where to begin right now because we've just, we sat by and watched the thing deteriorate so completely. Uh, you know, it's... I, are you sure we need to address the, the curriculum? We can do a lot more there. We need to get more material in there. But in the end, it's the attitude of the people that are running it and the quality of the teachers. And if, if they've, they've been brought up on this, they've gone to university and they've been taught all this, you know, unpatriotic um, nonsense, they're gonna, that's their view of the world. And how you change that, I don't know, except maybe keep reminding kids of what a fantastic country this is. Maybe, I've got the idea, this is one I've been harbouring for a while. Maybe what we should do is, is to actually sponsor special school trips. Not, most of them go to Canberra, right? To look at, that's good, but maybe we should actually send them to Pyongyang, to North Korea. <laughs> and, and maybe then they come back rather more grateful for this wonderful free country we're in. We could send them to the floods in Pakistan. Yes. I mean, they could probably probably help out a bit. But speaking of Australian culture, we saw two members of the Australian Greens emulating United States Senator Alexandria Octavio-Cortez at the Canberra Midwinter Ball last night, wearing dresses adorned with political slogans as AOC did at the uh, Met Gala last year. Mm. Nick, there's a, there's a term for this. It's called cultural appropriation. <laughs> Yes, it is. And look, the same people who just were were so angry at Di Lee wearing a, a the Australian flag dress into, into into Parliament when she gave her wonderful maiden speech this week, those same people, oh, you shouldn't be doing that, but quite happy to wear, you know, extracts from Guardian editorials over their dresses. You know, I just thought it was a it looked pathetic. It looked a joke, and. Um, you know, the, the, it, it, in the end, it is. I mean, it just emphasises there's, there's no substance to this. It's all about the slogan, isn't it? They don't actually want to improve anything. They just want to be the sort of, the kind of people who are seen to want to improve things. That's it. And that's what that virtue signalling is all about. Well, it's, it's one thing to say end coal and gas, but what do you do then? I mean, is, is she going to turn up in a dress next year saying, I've got solar on my roof? I mean... Or... <laughs> I don't know. Maybe she could have solar panels on the dress. <laughs> you know, maybe that, that's a power watch or something. I, I don't know, but um, no, it's a... But this is it. She doesn't want coal or, or gas, right? So what does she want? And this is where you get into this deep energy illiteracy which infects largely educated or apparently educated people who just refuse to admit that actually 
wind and solar isn't going to do it. Uh, you know, even with a few little batteries, it's not going to solve the problem. And exhibit number one, Western Europe right now. Oh, they've gone along pretending that, that they could build all these windmills and they'd be absolutely fine while on the quiet just taking in gas from Russia. Now that's, that little ruse has come unstuck and they're all crying out for coal and gas and, and whatever and rationing the electricity. Well, that, that segues to my next question. Britain is about to go into a freezing winter with low gas supplies and high gas prices. New, new Prime Minister Liz Truss has supposedly solved the problem by just putting a cap on energy bills. Nick, if it was that easy, we'd do that here, wouldn't we? Yeah, what she means by that is effectively subsidising them or, 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 or forcing energy companies to go broke, it's one of the two. You can't do that, it's, it's nuts. I mean, that's the sort of policy that the Soviet Union tried for years and years and it just doesn't, you, know, you can't do that sustainably over long term. But look, things are really bad there. I mean, I've been on the phone to my family this week and last time you know, I spoke to them and the weather was sunny and they were all happy. Marked change of mood suddenly by this energy thing. And at least trust, I'm not going to be too hard on a Fred. I'd be enormously surprised and pleased if she succeeded. But look at it this way. I mean, Margaret Thatcher came to power after, in reaction to the winter of discontent brought on by Labour and its strikes. And I lived it, right? We were shutting down. Uh, I was a, um, in my mid-teens and, and there were constant blackouts. And actually, as I was just beginning to date girls, I actually thought that was rather good, but I was one of the few people in the country who did, you know. It was the winter of discontent. Now, trust comes to power going into a winter discontent and she's going to own it. And I just see that the odds, however good she is, and I really don't know, the odds are stacked against her. She's got two years to prove herself and uh, it's going to be two horrible years from, from as, all, as things look now. How do you think the relationship with Australia is looking? Will trust be a good friend to Australia? Oh, I think so. Yeah, definitely. There's, there's always been that uh, warmth towards Australia, which is always there, despite all the sporting rivalry and the joking. And, and there's no doubt that the, the Brits feel a lot more comfortable uh, in our company than they do with the, the French or the Italians. And, and you know, the great thing, I, I was back in Britain briefly in, in earlier this year, and it's fantastic to arrive at the airport. And it used to be that there was the EU and Brits queue and then there was us. You know, we, we were over there with the Turkmenistanis and people like that in this great long queue. It's all been reversed, Fred. It's fantastic. It's, it's Brits and, and selected Commonwealth countries, including us, and then all the Germans and French can go in the long queue. It's really very nice going to Britain right now, that, that bit at least. <laughs> Next thing you'll be, be served by Aussies in Earl's Court, uh, <laughs> pulling pints in Earl's Court pubs. That's never happened. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's, let's just talk about Boris, because a lot of political careers have been revived in a second act, Churchill and Menzies, mm. to name two of them. Do you think we've seen the last of Boris? I do. Well, no, I haven't seen the last of him, but in terms of his political career, we've seen the last. Uh, I, I just don't. In this day and age, it's very hard to come back. It was easier. Uh, in Churchill and Menzies' day, people were more forgiving and they weren't constantly subject to social media. You know, it'll continue, right? We've seen it with Scott Morrison here that I don't think Scott Morrison harboured any uh, attempts of coming back as Prime Minister. I'm very surprised. But, but, you know, they don't let up, do they? The media pound him relentlessly. 
Uh, so I just think the pressures are against him. People won't be allowed to forget whatever it was, his supposed failings uh, this time. And look, you know, oh, they, weren't they weren't grave policy mistakes. They were just personal mistakes that really hurt the hurt people. And that was the, you know, the partying. So I, I just, he won't, I'm sure he'll be on the, on the world stage. I'm sure he'll be on a, a very, very lucrative gig on the speaker's circuit around the world. I mean, I'd pay to see him. I don't know about you. <laughs> Well, let's talk about uh, NNG again, because you had a great column in The Australian on Monday um, advocating very persuasively for modular nuclear reactors. What's it going to take for these to be, uh, um, for the public to be convinced to get behind this, Nick? Well, it's interesting when you look at the polling, Fred, there's, there's, there's about a 60-40 split. 60% 60, 60 would, are willing to have a look at this. 40% say no way. And that 40%, I think, are the you know, the people I described as the energy illiterate population because they just don't get you actually need something. And this looks pretty good. I think it's going to be, you know, they're going to play very carefully. But I, I, I think that once you persuade to people what these are, how big they are, that they take up a fraction of the land of those great ugly solar farms and, and that they'll give energy all the time. But actually, we're not going to put them in your backyard. We're going to put them in old, you know, where, where coal-fired power stations are closing down and perhaps we'll put them next to aluminium smelters or something. People will be very comfortable with it then. I think the not in my backyard thing applies to almost everything. Uh, and it's not just nuclear. I was talking to the uh, guys from uh, uh, Western Australia, from a council there, or the mayor of a Western Australian council uh, the other day, and he told me they can't put a childcare centre anywhere. Everybody loves childcare centre, they don't want it next to them. So there is that, and they're going to have to do, it's obviously slightly stronger with nuclear, although I, I think I'd rather have a nuclear plant next to me than a childcare centre, quite <laughs> frankly. <laughs> and just quickly, very quickly before you go, Dominic Perrottet released a report uh, today um, detailing Sydney's uh, future as a, a global network of cities. Mm. It's one of those typical, you know, government plans where everything looks so... So brilliant, but I mean, it's all futuristic and, and uh, really quite uh, implausible, a lot of it. Mm. Yesterday, earlier this week, a, uh, a fire truck crashed into a tram in Sydney and ground the CBD to a halt for most of the day. We've got transport workers on strike. There's all sorts of stuff going on in Sydney. Hasn't Dominic Perrottet got other things to worry about? Look, I mean, there's time for these sort of things. You know, we like to have our spirits lifted and imagine what things might be in, you know, in the future. It's like watching the Jetsons or something. But, but I, I tell you, I don't think people are in the mood for that right now. COVID has changed things and, and they just want to know that the buses run on time, the trains run on time and, and, and they're not going to get pinged every 500 metres because they've got a speed camera. Those are the things that are irritating people. And... Uh, the, the Libs, when the Libs came to power under Barry O'Farrell, they were very mindful of that and came, came to power campaigning on those issues. But I, I don't think this future city thing is going to work, do you? It really isn't. No. Spoken like an erudite egalitarian, Nick Cater. Thanks for your time. Thanks, Fred. That's Nick Cater from Nick Cater's Battleground, which you can see every Friday evening at 8pm here on ADH-TV. Now, before I go, the best news during all of the past week must surely have been the news that Jacinda Ardern has spent a billion dollars a year 
on consultants and PR trying to spin her deplorable performance as Prime Minister of New Zealand into something vaguely positive. Not that this is good news for New Zealanders who are increasingly homeless, the problem Ardern was specifically elected to solve, and now need to foot the bill as well. The companies that benefited most from all this largesse are the big four consultants, Deloitte, KPMG, PwC, and Ernst & Young. You can imagine the synergy between them and Ardern. These management consultants long ago morphed from being instruments of capitalism into citadels of idealistic professionals to whom culture is something cooked up in a petri dish in the HR department. Writer Daryl McLaughlin, McLaughlin put, it his, put it this way in an essay recently, quote, it's almost as if the primary role of the administrative state is shifting from serving the people to the redistribution of wealth to the staffers, lawyers, PR companies, managers, and consultancy firms that work for them. A billion dollars a year in public sector consultancy is an awful lot of money when you're running out of teachers and nurses because you don't pay them enough and the fire trucks are breaking down." Unquote. Well, we in Australia have always had a healthy rivalry with New Zealand, but the race to the bottom of wokeism is one I'm happy to let them win. Well, that's it from me. Thanks for joining me. I'll see you again next week at, on next Monday at nine o'clock. Good night.